This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. So there you have it, Upside Down Kingdom we're talking about today. Matthew chapter 10, if you brought your Bibles or if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 10, Bibles are underneath your seats if you don't have them with you, or you can use your phone, that's fine, play a game while you're while you're there too. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 is about Jesus sending out the 12 disciples. And so we're talking about a mission, being sent to do something. And my mind wanders to when I'm sent to do something, which usually has to do, and some of husbands in the crowd will probably uh, relate to this. I get sent to the grocery store or to Target very often. uh, And usually I'm sent with these sorts of instructions. Go get a, um, some pull-ups for the kids, and you need to get size four, and on the way out the door, make sure it's the green box. That's the only brand I like. The other one's leak or something like that. To which I get to the store, and I find an entire wall of green boxes. All of the brands have green boxes, and there's no size four. There's four T, and four S, and four Q, and four M, or whatever. So I pick one randomly, and I bring it home, and of course, it's incorrect, and I have to go back and do it again. That's what I think of when I think of being sent on a mission. However, fortunately, Jesus gives way better directions than my wife when he gives his directions to his disciples. She's here. Don't worry about it. And I warned her I was going to take a crack at her. She likes when I do that. It's like, you know, airtime for her. So we're in chapter 10. (laughs) Am I going backwards? We're in chapter 10, first few verses. And one of the things we have to deal with is the fact that this passage is not really directly for us. We're not one of the 12 disciples. And we're not being called specifically to the nation of Israel. And to, those, and to that particular time and place. So some of the stuff that's in here uh, is for them. But there's a lot in here that we can take. And there's a lot in here that shows the upside-down nature of the kingdom that Jesus is continuing to institute. And so I want to look for that in this passage. And so I'm going to start in the first few verses. 10, chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Summoning his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and heal every disease and sickness. And then he actually does something a little kind of bizarre, I think. He names off all of the people involved in this call. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter. Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. There's the first thing that seems a little upside down to me in just those first couple of verses. We get 12 names. And although we don't know a lot about all of the disciples, we do know enough for me to say this. This list is not that great. The people on this list were not, in my mind, really well qualified for the mission they're being sent on. Let me tell you what I mean. There's five of them here that I think probably I could have done a better choice 
of making, making sure who was on the team. One is Simon Peter. What does he do later on in the story? He denies Jesus and his relationship with him three times. But there's others in here. Thomas is on the list. You remember Thomas, who will later doubt that Jesus rose from the dead and require an opportunity to reach into the nail holes in order to be convinced that Jesus is resurrected. There's others as well. Matthew gets a title to his name, the tax collector. And certainly IRS agents are not all that well liked in the the United States today, but that doesn't begin to get to what the tax collector title meant in the time of Jesus. Usually it was used synonymously with this title, sinner, because the tax collectors were typically cheats and liars, stealing money from people, taking too much, making sure they got paid by taking more than they were supposed to. So that's another one who's not that great of a disciple. There's others. Judas is on the list who will betray Jesus, and we all know his story. But there's another, Simon the Zealot. Now, a zealot meant that he was part of a political movement in order to overthrow the government of Rome and install a Jewish nation. Sounds exactly like what the people wanted Jesus to do. And Jesus wanted nothing to do with that plan. So therefore, he had one of his disciples who was diametrically opposed to what he was trying to accomplish. You see what I say? Not a great list. Here's the upside-down part. Jesus chose him anyway. And I'll get even more specific to today. I don't see any on the list who are ordained pastors full-time ministry people, or degreed seminarians. Those who we think should be called to carry the message of Jesus. Oh, now I get it. You might argue that the people who were able to travel with Jesus had all sorts of training. I get it. My point here is that you and I have all of the qualifications, all of the, the, the position that we need in order to carry forth the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The disciples were no better qualified, in fact, might have been worse, were no better informed. In fact, we find out throughout the Gospels, they really had no idea what Jesus was talking about half the time. And they were no better positioned in terms of their background in order to take forth this message. I find a little bit of comfort in that. That although I may not think I'm the best qualified to be on this mission, I'm called, I'm sent, and I have exactly what I need in order to pull it off. So what did they go to do? My my stand is like sinking because this Bible is so heavy. Somebody gave me this Bible and I thought it looked good. Uh, You know, the bigger the Bible, the more you know. So... uh, but it's sinking my stand. Okay, what did they go to do? Or what did they go to tell? So Jesus sends them out in verse 7, and he says, As you go, proclaim this. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, so freely give. And here's what I find upside down about that. Jesus says, go and tell them this. The kingdom of heaven is here. 
or I'm here. I, Jesus, am here. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. That's the good news. Why do I find that upside down? Because over the centuries, the church has gotten all caught up in all sorts of doctrinal, theological beliefs. It's divided us into thousands of denominations, or at least hundreds. We've gotten all wrapped up in what we believe and what's true and what's not. Who's right? But Jesus sends out these disciples and he says, Go and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's all you need. It's a very simple message. And I find that it's just really interesting to me that we, the church, universal, on our best days, we keep to a simple message. The message of the gospel of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And on our not-so-great days, we divide over things that didn't seem to matter to Jesus at all. We've got a simple message. And we're called to proclaim the gospel. We're also, as we see here, called that part of proclaiming the gospel is not just telling the words of the gospel, but demonstrating it in action. He lists off a whole bunch of things the disciples are supposed to do, and I'll kind of summarize them for you. Relieve people's suffering, will you? Proclaim that Jesus is here and relieve people's suffering. They go hand in hand. One goes with the other. And again, on our best days, the church over the centuries has built hospitals and reached out to poor in places no one else would go and educated people and tried to change the world and relieve suffering. And on our not-so-great days, we've been busy arguing with each other over who's right and who's wrong. And Jesus says, Go and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. And demonstrate it with these acts of relief of suffering. Friends, this is why we are so big on outreach here at Sunset. I'm proud of this church. Where I came from in Wisconsin, the church wanted nothing to do with the community. Why? Well, because they were worried about being corrupted by the culture and the community around them. So they kept everything at arm's length. Here, we dive into our community. We partner with our schools. We look for ways to work with those who are doing relief of suffering work. And I'm really excited about that because Jesus says the gospel, proclaiming it and demonstrating it, are part of the same. We're called to do both. They must go hand in hand. And so when you hear us talking about uh, our outreach to homeless folks and, and working with the school districts and family promise, when you hear us talking about Reynosa, Mexico or Uganda, those are part of our effort to proclaim the gospel. And I'm really excited that we're involved in those. There's a couple more things that are upside down about this kingdom Jesus is bringing and this mission he's sending his disciples on. And I'm going to warn you, they get harder from here. There's two more. And the further we go into the passage, the harder they get. So look at verse 16 to 20. He says, look, 
I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of them because they'll hand you over to local courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you'll be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. So as recruitment speeches go, this has got to be one of the worst ever given. Generally speaking, when I try to get you to do some volunteer work, I tell you, oh, it's only one meeting a month. It's no big deal. There's lots of good stuff. I try to play it up, right? I don't tell you you're going to be flogged and beaten and brought in front of governors. (laughs) But Jesus is saying, this is what is going to happen. Because the gospel will not be well received. Friends, we know this, right? You should not expect your government to be behind the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should not expect your culture to be positive about the way in which we share our faith. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm advocating going in so hard and ramming people with our faith that that they want to turn against us. No, I'm just saying that the very nature of the claim we're making, the very nature of the claim that is made in Scripture is counter our culture and was in that day too. It's a claim of exclusive nature. In that day, the religious culture wanted nothing to do with the thought that Jesus was the Messiah. They wanted a king to overthrow the political situation. In our day, our culture wants nothing to do with the claim Jesus makes that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except by him. Because we want to say, oh, you know, everybody could get there a different way. Lots of different things can be right. But the nature of the claim, and I don't make it, thankfully, God does. It's in the Bible. That's the claim that gets the trouble started. And so as we go out on this mission, as we go out to share and proclaim and even to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ, it probably comes as no surprise to you that there can be lots of discomfort around that. Thankfully, we sit in a church today where we're not fearful for our lives to come and proclaim our Christianity. There's lots of places in the world that that it's like that. But we certainly go to workplaces where it gets harder and harder every day to even be identified as a Christian, doesn't it? Let alone to share your faith with somebody else. This is to be expected. But there's good news in the passage, at least two points I see. The first is that when we are called into these sorts of difficult situations, Jesus says you're called there to bear witness. It's an opportunity to be called into difficult situation, to bear witness to the faith that you have. But even better is the second part. When they hand you over, don't worry about how, you, uh, what, about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour. I love that piece. 
Because if you're anything like me, I always worry that I don't have the right answers. I don't know quite enough to talk to people about my faith. And I'm not quite sure that I'll have all the right answers when I do. Oftentimes I get called to talk to people who are not have no faith at all when they have had somebody die or gotten some sort of diagnosis. And I think, I, I, I don't even know what to say. And God says, don't let that get in your way. It's not you speaking. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through you. And that's great comfort. It's also part of the challenge, isn't it? You got no excuse. Oh, I don't know enough about the Scripture. Don't care. I don't know all the answers that I should. I'm not that extroverted. I can't... No. We're called to go. We're called to proclaim. We're called to demonstrate what it is that Jesus has brought into the world and into our lives. And so then we go to the next one, which is verses 34 to 39. It gets even harder yet. 34 to 39 says, Don't assume, Jesus says, that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. I confess that I read these verses and I think, man, these are hard. I much rather prefer the Jesus I see on Christmas who comes to angels and declares, peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. And here he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Is that contradictory? Well, he's not talking about peace as in terms of violence or killing people. He's not saying that he's advocating violence. But he is saying a sword is a symbol of division. This message, this this proclamation, this kingdom is going to divide. Some will accept and turn toward it and others will reject. And he's warning his disciples. There will be division. And you're going to need to sell out to the mission I'm calling you to. By the way, it helps a little bit if you know that verse 35 is a direct quotation of a prophet who lived hundreds of years earlier. It might be noted in some of your Bibles that it's a direct quotation from Micah chapter 7. I'll turn there for you, but it really helps to put it into context. In Micah 7, the prophet writes that the day of the coming of the Lord is near... And then he writes these words, don't rely on a friend, don't trust in a close companion, seal your mouth. And then the words that Jesus quotes, surely a son considers his father a fool, a daughter opposes her mother, and a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his own household. But 
he says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. And later in that same chapter, he, he finishes the story, which is why it's so important to know the context. In the end of Micah 7, there's a set of verses that really could sound exactly like they belong in the New Testament talking about Jesus. He says, On those days, He will, God will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our sinfulness. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You, God, will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to your fathers from days long ago. The context of what God is saying here to his disciples is, I have come. This is the fulfillment of these age-old promises dating back to Micah and way back before that to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. This is what you've all been waiting for. The kingdom is here. And if it divides people, if it divides your family, if it causes tension, it's worth it to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying here. He's even taking the two things that most of us hold most dear in our lives, our family and our life itself, and saying both of those, both of those have to be laid down for this mission. Both of them. And that's hard to do. I'm like you. When I think about how to make a good life for myself, I think, got to have a good relationship. We've got to make sure I build my family and really focus on my family. And then I've got to put together all the pieces of my life to make a good life for my... It's not what Jesus says. He says, take that stuff and lay it down. Because if you lose your life for me, you'll find true life. Many people in this world are searching for the answers of what matters in life. And Jesus is saying it right here. It's absolute, complete, rock-solid commitment to a mission that he's sending us on. To proclaim the gospel and demonstrate it wherever we go. And somehow he says that by doing that, we will get life. We will experience the life we want. The life that we long for. It's upside down, isn't it? It's so crazy and doesn't seem right. And I wonder if the disciples, well, I wonder if they were like, it reminds me of an old camp game we used to play. Our kids are at camp right now, so I was thinking about camp. Middle schoolers are at camp. We used to play this old game, even before my wife, she won't even remember this game. We used to play a game where we had people, the first part of the relay was people hung upside down until a whistle blew. The idea was to pool all their blood in their head. Yeah, back then, we didn't care so much about what we were doing to campers. (laughs) But we would wait until it was, you know, long enough, and they were all red in the face. Then we'd blow the whistle, and they had to get upside down and try to run somewhere. Well, what happens is, just like the other game where you roll your head around a bat, and then you try to go, 
You stagger and stumble and you're, you're trying to gain your bearings. And I think that's what the disciples must have been thinking when they got these instructions. What is going on? How do I get my bearings around this mission that God's calling me to that seems so incredibly upside down? And to be true, Matthew chapter 10 is a turning point in the story. Matthew chapter 10 is where it's where we stop looking at Jesus and what he's doing. Up until this point, Jesus is the focus of the story. His authority, his teachings, his training of the disciples, his healing of people. But now, like a really good movie maker, the focus switches from Jesus to the disciples. And you're left with this moment in the story where you go, hmm, now that kind of changes everything. I wonder if everything that came before this was for this moment. Yeah. Jesus was preparing his disciples to be sent. And now the focus is not so much on disciples who, st- who, who listen and who learn and who watch what Jesus does. Now Jesus says, I'm giving you my authority and I'm calling you to go and do it yourselves. Oh my goodness, now this is a whole different ballgame. This reminds me of my speech class. Anybody remember taking speech class? Well, we used to have to take speech class, and I remember sitting in the class, listening and furiously taking notes while my teacher was giving instructions on how to give a speech. It was nice and and easy to do. I, I was watching, I was observing video she was showing, I was taking notes, until she said, all right, you and you, get up here and try it. Ooh. Stomach drop. Now it's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Watching, learning, seeing someone else do it. Good. I'm good with that. But the question that's being posed in Matthew 10 is, Are you ready to stop just being a recipient of the gospel and to be a participant? A participant in what Jesus is doing in the world. That's what we're called to. Are you ready to take this message into the world? And so we we come to this place where we have to make one other point which is I am not at all saying that the gospel message or its effectiveness depends on us. It depends on him completely. Please don't hear me to say anything other than the authority and the, and the strength to fulfill the message of proclaiming the gospel is completely through God and through his Holy Spirit. Nobody comes to faith except through him. And nobody comes to faith except through his working in their life. But we're called to participate. We're called to be a part of it. And so with the few minutes that I have left, I want to get really, really practical. Because many of us will say, "Ah, boy, I don't know what that means for me. I'm not even sure what that would look like. I have no idea how to do this. I agree with you in principle, but I just don't know what to do. And many of you have, some of you, I shouldn't say many, some of you have come up to me since I've been talking about this kind of focus on evangelism and proclaiming the message, and you've said, 
man, I'm scared to death you're going to tell me I have to go knock on doors and hand out tracts. I'm not. I don't even think that's really that helpful in our society. But let me tell you what it does look like. The women who were at the IF gathering a week ago talked about how they were encouraged to just think about two people in their life, in their circle of influence. Two people you already know. Not your stranger, so you don't have to knock on the door, but two people in your life who don't have faith or maybe have walked away or maybe you don't even know. Start with two people. And let me ask you to do one thing for them. Pray like crazy for those two people. Another guy I've been talking to who is in the Portland area and really training people to to get out and evangelize and share their faith, he says, pray like this. And I like his his method, gives me some some way to wrap my head around it. He says, pray first for the opportunity to have a casual conversation with somebody. Don't care what it's about. The Seahawks, if you want to be, you know, depressed. Uh, Whatever. Casual conversation. Then he said, pray after you get to that point for a meaningful conversation. Just something significant. How business is going or what's, how are things going with your family? I don't know. Anything meaningful. And then, after you've done those two and spent some time doing it, then you can pray for a spiritual conversation. You know, the truth is that most people don't, don't come to faith because somebody just kind of shows up and shares faith with them. Most people do because somebody's in relationship with them and they hit rock bottom and their parent dies or their diagnosis is bad or their relationship falls apart and they go looking for any sort of help. There's several in this church who found Jesus that way by people who were just there in relationship with them, ready to go when the Spirit was moving. And that's really what we're called to do. Pray like crazy for these folks. Pray for an opportunity to connect with them. And then let God do the work. Intentionally connect with people and rely on the Holy Spirit for opportunities to share and for the right words to say when you get the chance to do it. It Sounds really simple, but my guess is if you're like me, there's long stretches of your life where we don't do it. Get wrapped up in all kinds of other things. And we're not intentional about reaching out to those with our faith. For some of us, it might mean we've got to find a non-Christian or two and put them in our life because we don't have any. For some of us, it might mean reaching out just with more intentionality to people you already are connected with. But I think that's the message of this chapter. Reaching out to those, proclaiming the gospel in our areas of influence personally, and then as a church as well, demonstrating the gospel of Jesus through acts of service and relief of suffering. Father, I pray that you will give us the power, give us the freedom from fear, give us the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to know when to share, when to reach out, when to stay quiet and just be there for people. Lord, I'm so thankful that you say your spirit will speak for us. But Lord, I long for the people in this room, our church, to change our community 
by just sharing the gospel message that the kingdom of heaven is, is here and that we demonstrate that through acts of love and compassion. Lord, I long for people to be in this place in, in, in months and weeks and years from now who are praising your name because they've come to faith in you. Will you help us to be your agents to do that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we leave, I'd like to leave you with the verses that I read earlier in the sermon. Uh, Micah chapter 7. I just want to highlight two of those verses that I read to you, which are just amazing to think about, that these were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and they represent the heart of God towards you. It says, God will again have compassion on you. He will vanquish your sinfulness, and He will cast all of your sins into the depths of the sea. Amen to that, huh? God bless you and have a great week.